Good morning, everyone. Great joy, great joy once again to be with you. Uh, This morning we want to look at the subject, once again under the theme of the love of Christ, of discipline, divine discipline in relation to ourselves as the children of God. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter number 12. Hebrews chapter 12. You read the book of Hebrews, the epistle, and I agree with John Owen that it's an epistle of warning. It it casts a foreboding sense of bleakness upon us when we think about the theme of apostasy from the gospel. And particularly when we come to Hebrews chapter 12, we think of God's correction as something that is very negative, something that perhaps conveys a spirit of contempt that it just does not resonate, it does not afford joy. But I beg to differ with your mentality if that's what it is. Uh, This is extremely encouraging. Uh, There is overtures of great mercy in this text. It speaks uh, as it relates to the very center of the text, and that is the love of God. Whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. And so with that in view this morning, I I want to speak, I know that the conference title for this message was uh, Whom the Lord Loves, He Disciplines, but perhaps a more fitting title would be The Forgotten Factor in Discipline, and that is Christ's Love. Follow with me if you would, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11 And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let's look to the Lord in prayer once again. Father, what love is this? That not only have you fixated your love upon us before eternity began, before time began, yet Lord, this love is perpetuated all from the vantage point of the cross. And we thank you, Lord, for this multiplicity of mercies And one of these great 
mercies and implications is that you love us enough not to leave us to ourselves. You care for us. You administer your loving rod to us. Not in a penal way, but because you care and you delight in conforming us to the image of your Son. So would you please this morning, as we pray throughout these days, give us clarity of understanding that, Lord, we might benefit from seeing that what motivates at times your severe chastisement is great love for your people. So help now, Father, by your Spirit, glorify yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we come to the text here this morning, uh, it is somewhat daunting. There are some things in here that even in this very hour after studying diligently the content of this particular passage of Scripture, that even I have not drawn a definite conclusion. But that's the mystery of it. I believe it by faith. I'm grateful for the fact that God gives me contentment even when I don't figure out all the intricate details of His mind. We come to this text that showcases the love of God for His people. Perhaps the most popular by virtue of its theme. When we think about love, it seemed like all the other forebodings, forewarnings, they kind of fade into the distance. But we should never view, if we think of this as something very negative, we should never view it as such. You see, it is a token of God's mercy. And as I mentioned a moment ago, even in the context here, there are overtures of mercy that God has afforded us through His Spirit. As this holy man of old was moved upon by the Holy Spirit to give us such a wonderful encouragement in God's discipline. The text shows us how much the Lord cares for us. Infinitely so. For by it, by His correction... Our spiritual adoption, brothers and sisters, is confirmed and our perseverance in the faith is cultivated. Think about this. He is gracious to put this pressure upon us to administer such care and love toward us that this hedges us in. It keeps us on the straight and narrow. It enables us to pursue eternal life. You see, the testimony of many modern saints is life is a bummer. Life is difficult. Why is that? Well, as we mentioned yesterday just at a glance, but I give you the references that accompany these thoughts. You find, first of all, Jesus said in Luke 17 verse 1 that offenses, hardships are going to come. It's inevitable. Job says in Job 5 and verse 7, man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. And even the apostle Paul and Barnabas, they exhorted in Acts 14 verse 22, we must through much tribulation 
enter into the kingdom of God. Life is hard. And everyone has a story. And it's going to ebb and flow. There will be times that will call for great rejoicing. But there will be other times where literally our lives are fractured by circumstances that lead to debilitating depression. Even the most sanguine of people in this day and age, I believe Piper's writes, at times struggle with depression. Maybe not debilitating, but they struggle with thoughts of melancholy. So it's going to come. And therefore in the text here, when we see that right at the heart of it is the love of God, this promise lead us to great hope. You see, we see there are four ways, now listen to this, that professing Christians can respond to God's discipline. You see, they are not to be looked upon with indifference. These things include forgetfulness, contempt, weariness, and endurance. It's interesting, brothers and sisters, that the first three are negative, while the last one is positive. The general purpose for the book of Hebrews was to warn the Jewish professors who had put a faith in the Christian hope in Christ Jesus, but to warn them not to return to the practices of the religion that was predicated upon works. You see, by responding to adversity to trials, it could cost them their soul. It matters how you respond to the hardships of life. We're not smart to be able to readily discern what is a device, an attack of the evil one, what is something that is just a normal working of providence in our life, and what is chastisement. So therefore, it is imperative that you and I compose ourselves to always respond to anything that we encounter in our life with a composure of endurance. Listen to this. You recall that Hebrews chapter 10 verses 38 and 39 warns of the consequence of such a response. These responses of forgetting and weariness and contempt or indifference for the things of life that are of an adverse nature. Hebrews 10, 38 and 39, the ESV says, God speaking, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Can you imagine that? That God would not have any pleasure in you and I. That there comes a time that we're cut off. He said, my soul shall have no pleasure in you. But he says, the writer, but we are not of those who shrink back, fall back, draw back, and are destroyed, but of those who have faith even under the perseverance of the soul. Listen to this. The expression shrink back here in the ESV represents an adverse response. It means, brothers and sisters, to cower or to neglect. That's the overarching theme of Hebrews. 
don't neglect so great a salvation. It's interesting that you remember Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 2, that we preserve our soul if we keep in memory of the gospel, lest we believe in vain. So it's important that we ever keep this before us. That we delve into it, that we relish in it, that we reap the benefit of it, that we keep it ever before our mind and heart. You see, there are those that profess, but they don't possess. Consequently, they forget the exhortation of discipline. Sometimes they're indifferent toward it, and sometimes they're wearied by it. But notice this, by shrinking back so as to remain in a state of neglect, they imperil their soul. It's important that you come to church. I know we think sometimes that that's a legalistic ploy of the elders, of the pastors, that insist that we're in the church of God, the building of God, when the saints gather together. But it's important, friend. This is a preserving nature or source. You remember, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but so much the more as you see the day approaching. Be in the house of God. Conrad Murrow wrote a track called Go to Church or Go to Hell. He was not advocating that a person has to go to church to be a Christian. But he was talking about the redeeming value, profoundly so, of being in the context with the people of God, under the sound of the Word of God, under the nurturing influence of fellowship with the people of God. This is important. So you've got an excuse that you think is a reason for not being faithful to church. And I tell you, you really run the risk, and you run the risk on the behalf of your family to imperil your soul as well as the souls of your family. I was with a pastor in Pennsylvania. I noticed one night his wife and children were not at the service. I wasn't judging, I wasn't censoring, but I just casually asked, I said, Brother, I missed your family last night. He said, yeah, my son had a little league baseball game. And so I had a real bond with this pastor. We were good friends. And I said, Brother, let me caution you. I said, I love sports. My kids played sports. But we never compromised the prayer meeting. We had services, they were at church. Because I never underestimate that particular time, the very time that I might choose to yield a temptation in keeping my family out of church is the very appointed time that God could speak to my child's heart and bring them into the kingdom. And so this brother was a little agitated at me. He thought I was implying that his family could lose their salvation. He said, I don't think that they'll lose their salvation by going to a Little League baseball game. I said, brother, that's not what I'm saying. I said, what you're doing is you're saying that, listen, Little League baseball is more important than coming to the house of God. And I know this is not popular, especially in this day and age with all the anarchy and 
insurrection and people accusing pastors or elders of the subtle power of spiritual abuse. But listen, friend, somebody needs to say it. Don't neglect being with the saints of God. And it doesn't necessarily have to be in a conference. Be given a hospitality. Little things that are said by your neighbor, by those in the kingdom of God, that your brothers and sisters in Christ may make all the difference in the world in the lives of your children or in your own life. But there's these warnings of not neglecting. If a person who professes faith in Jesus, though, and here's a positive posture, endures God's loving correction, they prove their profession of faith genuine and profit from the Lord's discipline. You see, from the text, I want you to see this now. I want to highlight truth, that truth that validates saving faith. That truth that centers on God's discipline for His children. Now I direct your attention here to verse 6. For everything centers on this forgotten factor. They're behind it all. Regardless of how intense, adverse, severe the situation you may be going through is, you must respond with a composure of endurance. That Greek word, guess what it says in the Greek? Endurance. It denotes a good fight of faith. Enduring hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. It's painstaking. It's difficult. But those who are in the kingdom of God, who have been birthed into another kingdom, God, by virtue of the dynamic of the indwelling spirit, causes you to press on. And it's for your good, for for your perseverance. Now, here's my three points once again, even for this message. Number one, let me just talk to you for a few moments on God's love is never conditioned by our walk. In verse 6, it says, For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. You'll note that the Father's love is unconditional. It does not fluctuate based on obedience or disobedience. Verse 6 says, The Lord disciplines the one He loves. And as I understand the text here, brothers and sisters, His affection does not waver on the basis of our performance. Therefore, His discipline is always administered with a never-changing posture on God's part. His love is fixated. Now, here is a powerful impetus for overcoming fear, unbelief, and depression. The great incentive toward Christ's likeness in the life of us as Christians is His loving discipline. Let that sink way down into your hearing. God is not moralistic. 
He is not legalistic. He does not browbeat his people. His smile brings conviction enough and subsequent change. And so this great love, being eternally fixed, it will never falter in response to what we do. Did you hear that? It never does abate in response to what we do. You see, it is not... It is not Him, but us that are responsible for a diminishing sense of that love. It doesn't dissipate from His perspective. The problem is, is we experience a lasting of the sense of that love because of our response to His correction. I can't tell you in being in churches in the early years of my Christian life, how I was led to believe that my acceptance from God was based on my performance. And I mean, I would really crank up the performance treadmill. And I would really try to perform for the sake of my peers and try to do anything I could to merit their approval. It's a wretched system. It proved to be fruitless. Think with me for a moment. Even to this very day, sometimes I'm tempted to draw back into this moralistic performance. I get up, my normal schedule is I get up early in the morning. I go to my office, I do my devotional exercises. My wife will call me later in the morning for breakfast. We'll sit and we'll talk around the breakfast table, then we have our devotional time together as a couple. This particular morning, you know, I mean, I've had a fruitful time in my devotional exercises. I mean, I've really gotten some things out of the Word. My heart has been stirred. Desire has been stoked. And then when I pray, I mean, it's like the heavens are opened. I sense God draws near. I go to the breakfast table. My wife and I, our conversation is savory. I mean, it's sweet. We communicate. We transition into our devotional time. Sometimes we read maybe something from the Puritans. Sometimes it's a text from the Scripture. Sometimes it might be an article that we feel like would, we would benefit from. And then we talk about it. And sometimes we even spar theologically, which is a good thing. It's good for both of us. And then we pray together. I go get a shower, I have things to do in town, and so I get in my car, drive to town, and as I pull out on the highway, I'm suddenly cut off by someone. But in the back of my mind, I'm saying, this is a great day. I mean, I have peace with God. I'm walking with a sense of God's presence. No problem. I defer to the oncoming traffic, this guy that veers over in front of me. I run around town that day. I mean, there's just such a sense of God. I'm emboldened. I share... A witness in passing, sometimes depending on the context, if the person has time, I engage them with the gospel. 
It's been a wonderful time. And I come home that afternoon and I sit in my recliner in my office and I reflect and I said, this has been a good day. Another morning comes. I get up a little later because I stayed up too late the night before. I go to my office. I try to read my Bible. It's like a closed book. I have to reread things. There's got to be something here. I just can't get it. I feel like it's a closed book. I try to pray. It's very mechanical and superficial. It's like God does not draw near at all. I just go through the motions. My wife calls me to breakfast. We sit down. We start talking. And all of a sudden, an issue comes up that we don't see eye to eye on. And we begin to argue. I force devotions that morning. I don't want to read. I don't want to think about. I don't want to dialogue with my wife because things are not right. I go through the motions. It's stiff. It's structured. It's unproductive. And so then I go to get a shower to go to town. And when I come out and get in the car, I go back on the same highway and somebody inevitably will cut me off. And I've got some pretty unpleasant thoughts and words under my breath that I express in frustration. I run my errands. I feel like a hypocrite. I don't want to witness to anybody. I don't want to talk about Christ. I don't want to go so far as just to give even a passing piece of literature that speaks of the gospel. So I come home in the afternoon and in the evening, I think, over the day. Bad day. Bad day. But here's the thing I want you to understand, friend. When you see things from a gospel perspective, every day is not only a good day, it's a great day. By virtue of the fact that God's love is stayed on me and stayed on you. It's not based on our performance. His love, once again, is stable. It doesn't ebb and flow. Secondly, God's love motivates us to endure. You'll notice verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. The King James Version says it like this, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. This is the evidence of our sonship. It's the evidence of saving faith is how we respond. We see these things as God's gestures of correction and we respond to them accordingly. Listen to this. To meditate upon the objectives of God's love behind discipline stokes. It stokes desire to change. You see, the tokens of His love in the text, motivate us to please Him. Note some of the evidences of God's love. First of all, the word discipline in verse 6 carries with it, now listen to this, it carries with it from the original language the connotation to watch over or to care for. His eyes never divert from our lives. No matter how many times I've committed this one particular sin, this besetting sin, He doesn't blink. He's constantly watching. You'll notice the idea in watching over or caring for 
is, is expressed with the intention of training. Training. Furthermore, there is the word receives in verse 6, which encompasses, now watch this, you talk about encouraging. It encompasses a longing to delight in. Why is God putting the pressure on? Why is He administering correction to our lives? So that through the discipline, through the training, He might cultivate in us such likeness that He delights in. He's not given up on us. He doesn't work independently of us. He has an objective in correction, and that is He longs to delight in us. And then you'll notice something else here. It's in the word good in verse 10. Other translations use, they use the word profit as a substitute for good. And once again, the word good or profit carries with it the idea of an affectionate stewardship and affectionate care. God's not against us, brethren. God will never cast us off. He never looks at us with contempt. You underestimate your righteousness that's been imputed to you through the work of Christ. He looks upon you with a smile. And finally, you see the Father's tender care in the fruit that it produces. This is what I'm for. The writer uses the expression, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. You will notice that it does not say, are you with me? The work of righteousness. It is not something that comes as a result of self-initiative or self-effort. It is something that the Father does. You see here, fruit is the outcome of the Father's loving nurture as pictured, you remember, in John 15, verse 2, when Jesus says, Every branch that does not bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. This is the key to real growth. God putting the pressure on. Have you ever thought about, you know, the Bible talks about that, that He is the vine, we are the branches. When you think about the whole concept of God growing us up in Christ, what would you think would be the supreme factor in conforming us to the image of Christ, in enabling us to grow spiritually? Think about the physical plant, the physical tree. Is the supreme agent of nurture and growth Water, or sun, or fertilizer? This is strange, listen. God's primary agent to stimulate growth is wind. The winds of adversity. Because what happens is, friend, if we've been planted by the Lord... It drives the roots even deeper into Christ. You remember Spurgeon said, I've learned to kiss the wave 
that slams me against the rock of ages? We've got to have that perspective. Samuel Rutherford said, when you find yourself in the cellar of affliction, always look for the wine. It's Christ. It's Christ. He's crowding us to Christ. And when is necessary, the winds of God's correction. I want to share this quote with you by Arthur Pink I thought was very appropriate. He said, It is not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it, which distinguishes the child of God from empty professors. Thirdly, consider something else with me in the light of God's love when it comes to discipline. God's love always profits for the partaking of His holiness. God's love. Verse number 10, But He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. My wife told me, she said, You know, honey, I I really appreciate God's love. Growing up, you see, she would go out in public high school. She was not a believer. There was a temptation to drink, to take drugs, to be sensual. And she said, even though I did not have the Lord at that time, what God used to preserve me was not the threats and the anger of my father. But it was the love of my mother to know that it would disappoint her. It would devastate her if I brought a blight on my life by some act of worldliness. The love of God, the love of the Father. I love this. There was a professor at Columbia Bible College by the name of Dr. Frank Sales. I never had a chance to meet the man But a friend of mine in North Carolina, he would take a group of pastors down every month and they would take Dr. Sales out to lunch and just pick his brain. He was a seasoned minister, full of wisdom. And my friend Glenn said one day we were talking around the table and he said, I asked Dr. Sales, I said, were you ever tempted to run run around with that wild, hilarious, worldly crowd? Were you ever tempted to go out and party with the world's people? And he said, Dr. Sells looked at me and says, No, Brother Glenn, I never was. I had so much fun with my father, with my daddy, I never was tempted. That's it. Have so much fun with my father, I'm never tempted by these desires. Listen. The very words, He disciplines us for our good, denotes a constant love. It incites us to endure, share in His holiness, and yield the fruit of righteousness. Brethren, listen. Often God is portrayed in preaching or parenting as an abusive authority. I'm not an advocate of hyperpatriarchy. Where the man uses his family as pawns to build his own kingdom. 
You want a wake-up call if that's your view? Look at the Heavenly Father. This very portrayal of God, if we see Him as an abusive authority that is very impatient with us and is just ready to swat us if we step out of line, it sucks the very life out of any child of God to walk uprightly. You see, to give the impression that God is strict Father just waiting for His children to step out of line will discourage His people. I love, as I shared yesterday with someone in passing, the words of Ted Tripp. He said, we must remember that rules without a relationship equals rebellion. And you try to build a relationship as parent with child in encumbering them with a lot of rules without there being a living, vital relationship with that child, it's going to pan out into rebellion and self-willfulness. And this may be the very reason why so many believers in this modern era are so unfaithful in their walk with God. They have a distorted view of the Almighty. He is such a loving, kind, patient, gracious, long-suffering Father. And it's like Charles Leiter told me one time, I said, well, what if you tell that to to people in the church? I said, many people will, will think, yeah, yeah, I can just sin all I want. He said, that's the response of someone that is religiously unregenerate. But if a true child of God gets a perspective of God's love and God's patience toward them, it produces such conviction in them that they want to go on and pursue holiness in the fear of the Lord. Fourthly, God's love may be severe, but it's not punitive. Are you with me? Don't miss this. His love at times... The things that He applies to our life may be very discomforting, very painful, very severe. But never is He trying to exact forgiveness or penance out of us. It's all been paid for in the person and work of Christ. He says in verse 11, for the moment when we're experiencing this discipline, all discipline seems painful. Now watch this. God's correction is administered to transform us. You see, its purpose, brothers and sisters, is never intended to punish His children or make them pay for their sins. And while some methods of discipline are harder and more difficult to endure than others, we should never think that the severity of the correction is because God demands payment. Christ's propitiation is sufficient for the Father. Therefore, He does not demand any self-inflicted punishment to atone for our sins. They've already been completely paid for in the finished work of Christ. So, what do we learn from this? Let me encourage you with these words. There were saints in Scripture that were disciplined severely. But it was not an end in itself. 
Moses forfeited his ministry. Remember there in Numbers chapter 20, when he stands before the children of Israel and he misrepresents God. Remember God said, because you believe me not, to sanctify me before the eyes of the children of Israel, ye shall not bring this people into the land which I have promised them. He forfeited his ministry because he misrepresented God. But here is a merciful work of God. He loved Moses. He brings him to the mountain and he allows him as an act of mercy to see the land. That was huge in the eyes of Moses. Furthermore, you find that David incurred a prolonged season of pain as he witnessed the deaths, the premature deaths of four sons. God says, the sword will not depart from your house. I'm going to raise up evil against your domestic sphere, your home, continuously. It results in the loss of his four sons. Yet, in spite of that, God restores David. He brings restoration to David. He affirms him at the end of his life. How about Samson? Suffered the loss of his strength, his sight, and a sense of God's presence. He shook himself as times before, but he wished not that the Spirit of the Lord had departed from him. But listen, his name is recorded in the Hall of Faith. It's amazing, friends. Some of those guys and gals in the Hall of Faith. If I was God, I wouldn't put their names there. But I'm not. He's far more merciful than I am. Infinitely so. You see, He's not after retribution, but restoration. So I wrap things up with this. I hope this will be a bomb to your soul. I I pray that God might use this, this feeble message as a lifter of your head this morning. We must not think of correction as a display of God's anger. When the Father chastens, He doesn't do it out of frustration. His intention, men and women, is never to exasperate, but to confirm our sonship. That we're His child. You see, He invokes soul-preserving endurance enables us to share in His holiness and seeks to produce the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And to comprehend the love of God in discipline, whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, will afford a refuge for perplexed saints. My brother asked me, he said, I didn't quite understand the word buoy. Well, many people don't. Sometimes I assume things. So I, I, I told him, I said, Brother, I'm sorry. I, I should have made that more clear. But buoy means it's like a, a buoy in the ocean. It, it lifts up. It comes to the surface. This is a divine buoy to sustain your life and enable you to rise above even the trials that come in the form of God's chastening hand. So listen, I close with this statement. This kind of wraps everything up. I pray it ministers grace to you. Remember, 
God's loving discipline may be severe, but it's not punitive. Rejoice, saints, that the chastisement of your peace was laid upon Christ once and for all and not daily required of you. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, you love us. I'm so grateful, Father. So grateful. And everything is unleashed from a love that's past finding out. Make this real to us, Spirit of God. That the Lord Jesus might be more beautifully formed in us. For what better way to partake of your holiness, Father, than to be conformed to the image of your Son. Amen. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.